This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And it's great to be with you this morning for another live program. This is our 97th consecutive program in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic that seems to be with us um, for an extended period of time. We have a lot to talk about today. Uh, We want to talk a little bit about the COVID-19 guidelines now for testing that have come out in the past week from the CDC. We're also going to talk about monkeypox, right? It's something we've been talking about here early on. If you remember the first time we talked about it on this show, there were 47 cases in the United States. Then we spoke about it again, and we had my guest, Dr. Michael Rajkumar, on, and we looked at about 2,400 cases. Well, now there are over 11,000 confirmed cases of monkeypox in the United States, and we're going to take a closer look at that. Then we're going to talk about another infection that you've been hearing about, an old infection that's come back to visit us, I should say haunt us, and that is polio, the poliomyelitis virus, the poliovirus itself, and it can cause poliomyelitis. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and what you're hearing about it and what it means to you as this story emerges out of New York. You know, previously on our program, we, we had a discussion about dentistry. And I was talking a little bit about the realm of public health and the role dentistry plays in that. So today, my guest in the second half of our program is going to be Dr. Matthew Prezioso. Dr. Prezioso is a dentist practicing in Southington and in East Hartford. He's recently trained. So he's a young dentist just got training because this is a truly dynamic field that is changing a great deal. So I'm really looking forward to having him on the program in the second half um, to talk more about dentistry and its importance in keeping us healthy. The COVID statistics are still there, right? We have a positivity rate now as of yesterday of 12.32% here in Connecticut. That is the number of PCR and NAAT tests that are performed, 12.32% positive. This time last year, right, we were cruising around 1%. So it's clearly increased with the latest variant, the BA5 variant, which we know is much more easily transmissible. So there's a lot of discussion of this is here forever. This is what we have to live with. And and I understand that. But by the same token, I think that's also kind of a quitting mentality. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Because don't forget, there are over a million dead Americans 
from COVID-19. Now, I've heard from you. I get the letters saying, well, you know, these people died, but they just happened to have COVID. And not true, folks. Early on in this, we saw direct deaths from COVID. We are still seeing some direct. I'll, I'll grant you that some people are hospitalized for another reason and found to have COVID, but don't develop symptoms from COVID. Also, that most people now have fewer symptoms from COVID. Not as big as it was and not as impactful as it was in the past. And that's because things have evolved, right? So over time, we're starting to learn and we're starting to understand that more people are developing some level of immunity, right? We believe now about 95% of Americans are in, have some level of immunity. Those are Americans over the age of 16. We still have to address children a little bit more effectively. So the 12.32%, that means in, in any group of 100 people, 12 people are most likely positive at that point in time. And uh, I received one letter this week in, in kind of outlining that and, and really questioning why do I talk about these statistics when it comes to COVID. And I think it's important because everybody has to make their own judgment. So when it comes to wearing masks and social distancing, although the new guidelines are different for that, you have to assess the situation you're going into and the risk it may pre present to you. For me, it's a lot of risk, right? If I, if I don't go to work, I don't get paid, right? So if I uh, can't be around my grandchildren because I'm COVID positive, uh, that's a problem for me. It also impacts travel, which I have to do for work. So uh, I tend to be more conservative than others. For example, I don't ever think I'm going to get on an airplane again and not wear a mask. But you have to understand that I'm also somebody who wiped down the seat with a Purell wipe before I, before COVID was ever a problem. Why? Because it's something little to do that has a big game, right? There's, there's risk benefit, huge benefit, very little effort to do. And I've heard from people, you know, they, well, the air on an airplane is so filtered, you know, it's the safest air you could breathe. Again, not true when you're sitting on a runway, which many of us have done a great deal lately, right? We pull away from the, uh, from the terminal and you sit and you sit and you sit. That is not fresh air that's being generated from the motor and, and that's ultimately filtered. That's just you in a closed space with 300 other people. So again... I don't fault people if you don't want to wear a mask and you want to take the risk. You know, again, that's your choice. If you don't mind congregating in closed areas, again, your choice. But by the same token, everybody's making different choices. So the purpose of my discussion on this program is to educate everybody. Let them know and be well informed regarding the risks they may face. And that's the 12.32% that's out there. You know, again, a lot of people say, well, you know, the flu, 
it's like the flu. We don't wear a mask when we have the flu. Flu is a seasonal problem, right? And we know that it, it comes in fall and winter. That's when the, the viral titers are highest. But with COVID, there's no seasonal, right? When we first started this, everybody's saying, well, when summer comes, we're better. Or when sunlight comes, we're going to clear this up. Well, that's not the case. So it's something that's going to have to be part of your life and part of your daily practice as to how you're going to work through COVID. When we look at the new COVID recommendations, again, I said it's based on the fact that we're evolving to the point where many people have some level of immunity. But we have to also take into consideration there are a lot of new mutations. That's why there will be new vaccines, and those vaccines will be strongly recommended. So in the new recommendations, if you're COVID positive, right, it's still the same. Five days of quarantine, five days of a mask, and you retest until you're negative. So you should take at least two tests and be negative. If you're exposed to COVID, this is the biggest change, right? If you think you're exposed by a family member or someone you've been around, you don't need to quarantine. But you need to wear a mask for 10 days, including indoors, to protect yourself. Again, you're living with somebody who has COVID. Wear a mask. Use those precautions. And test again at day five. So you want to make sure you're testing with that exposure. What we'd like you to do now is really just test. And we're saying three tests instead of two especially if you have symptoms. So again, you're exposed, have symptoms, you test yourself, you're negative, you wait 48 hours, you test again. If you're negative, you test again at day five, okay, to make sure you're still negative. So those are the new guidelines. This is going to have a great deal of impact with going back to school. Right? Because we're not going to be less inclined to keep children out of school because someone tested positive at home. And they've gotten rid of the test to return, meaning the child needs to test. I think it's a responsible thing to do to test. We don't test enough. Test, test, test. And that's how you will identify where the virus is so you can quarantine and wall it off. That's the strategy here. I also wanted to mention uh, something just briefly before we take a break. Uh, Lyme disease is something we talked about a few weeks ago, right? We talked about the analogies between Lyme and COVID. Uh, you know, in the United States, 476,000 people are treated in the U.S. for Lyme disease every year. And the thing, reason I'm bringing this up is a new trial has started for a Lyme vaccine. There was one 20 years ago. But very few people took the vaccine. Why? Because it did have a lot of side effects. Um, so this trial is going to be 6,000 patients from the Northeast, as well as in Finland, Germany, and the Netherlands, where we also see high levels of Lyme disease. And this vaccine is, again, different. It targets the bacterium, the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, so we're hoping and we will follow the progress with that trial. We're going to take a short break, and then I'm going to be back to chat with you a little bit about 
where we are with monkeypox and the emerging information regarding the polio virus. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And in this segment of the program, as mentioned, and as many of you have emailed in, by the way, uh, I love getting your emails at info at alessimd.com. I appreciate your comments and some of the links that you send me to pertinent articles on things we're hearing about in the news and talking about on the show. So, again, that's info at alessimd.com. Let's chat a little bit about monkeypox. As I mentioned at the beginning of the program, those numbers have risen and continue to rise as people who are infected with the monkeypox virus. And those cases are increasing. And it, it's very different from COVID. It is a pox virus, very similar to smallpox, for which many of us already have some immunity right? Because we were vaccinated against smallpox when we were younger. Uh, but this condition really is requires two to four weeks of isolation, and it is a painful problem. It often presents with fever, night sweats, and these painful, ugly lesions. And people have said that it, it's, it's like having chards of glass under your skin. It's like being on fire. And those are typically symptoms you see when it affects nerves. And they carry the wrong sensation at a particular point in time. You get it from physical contact. But here's the real history behind it. This recent outbreak started five years ago in West Africa, where they identified a group of cases of what has come to be known as monkeypox, even though it has nothing to do with monkeys because it really, the reservoir is a rodent. But the cases were identified in West Africa, and we didn't do anything about it. When I say we, I'm saying about the collective of industrialized countries uh, throughout the world and the World Health Organization. Subsequent to that, there were groups of gatherings of gay men in Antwerp, Belgium, and in the Canary Islands. And it was at those uh, gatherings that we started to see the spread of monkeypox. Again, not in the last few weeks, okay? And now we started to see the spread. So naturally, it came to New York. Although it is seen primarily in gay men, it is also seen throughout the population. And it is because that this is a virus you get with contact. If you use a towel, if you have any physical contact with any of these lesions. Here's the crazy part of this. We have a way of testing for monkeypox. We always have. We have a vaccine against monkeypox. And we have a medication to get rid of the symptoms. One infectious disease expert described it as like a fire drill for an infectious disease. Right? Somebody came to us 
all this industrialized nations are sitting there saying, okay, we're going to do a drill. We're going to give you a, an infectious disease, and we want to see how you handle it. But the key thing is you have a vaccine, a test, and a medication to treat this virus. Let's see how you do. Well, if that was the case, we fell flat on our faces, right? We were told we had 20 million vaccines available. Yeah, that was 20 years ago. Those expired. We did not, we were not ready to make the medication to treat it, and we certainly didn't know how to distribute the tests. In the month of June, only 60, 60 tests were available in the city of New York, where we knew the outbreak was. Now, how are we going to get control of this? Typically, from an infectious disease standpoint, when you identify the virus, you have to start focusing on a ring strategy. Strategy. You have to start vaccinating the communities around where that center is. I'm afraid we're going to see a lot more cases of this. Why? Because we're going back to school, colleges, dormitories, contact, physical contact, towel contact. Also, it's going to be a lot like MRSA, right? We saw this in locker rooms. Again, a contact problem. So we have to be very careful of this. We're going to keep watching it on this program and talking about it. Quickly, I wanted to talk about the polio virus in a couple of minutes. The polio virus has now been found in wastewater in New York City to a large degree. And one case has been confirmed in Rockland County, New York. That's the first case in the United States since 1979. Polio virus is an enterovirus. It comes in through your gut. It's carried in the feces. It's not a respiratory virus. You can get the non-paralytic form of it, which you would have typical viral symptoms. But as we all know and remember, there's a condition called poliomyelitis where the polio virus affects the spinal cord and the anterior horn cells. It's a motor illness. It is paralyzing. Paralyzes respiratory muscles, paralyzes physical muscles. Why is this problem here? Is because some parents felt that they didn't want to vaccinate their children. I, I, I think that's a form of child abuse right now. I have no tolerance for that. Why? Because these same parents who have decided, I'm not going to vaccinate my child against polio, that when it comes to dealing with these children the rest of their lives, it's going to be on our backs, every one of us in the community, right? Somebody has to pay for braces, a respirator, a wheelchair, special education, because you decided that you heard something on the Internet or some celebrity out there saying, oh, no, don't vaccinate your children. Well, listen to your doctors. Listen to the people who you should be trusting the most and not the Internet. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Matthew Prezioso, and we're going to be talking about the importance of dentistry in public health. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and in 
this half of the program. It gives me great pleasure to welcome my guest, Dr. Matthew Prezioso. Dr. Prezioso is a dentist practicing in Southington and Hartford, in East Hartford. And by way of full disclosure, Dr. Prezioso is my godson. And his dad and I both went to medical school together at the University of Rome. And I really wanted to get Matt on to really talk to us about some of the changing areas in the field of dentistry. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to be on here and talking with you. So, Matt, let's, let's start right from the beginning a little bit about how a dentist is trained. Um, you know, when your dad and I went to medical school in, in Italy, dentistry was just a subspecialty of medical school. So the people in medical school with us, um, some were going off to practice dentistry. Um, is, is that the way it is to some degree here now in the United States? Because I know our students at UConn, where you went to school, often in the first uh, two years uh, are with medical students. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. It's still kind of um, training in that aspect where the first two years are kind of everyone's all together. You're taking all the same uh, core curriculum med, med classes with the med students kind of getting that foundation for um, the kind of background and the sciences, learning about all different diseases, different body systems. And then kind of after those, those first two years is kind of when every, both the med students and the dental school students, at least at UConn, kind of break off and, and kind of go their separate ways where the dental students start to go into the clinic. They start seeing patients and, and kind of building building the kind of hands-on aspect at that point. Matt, what's the difference between a DMD and DDS at the end of your name? I know you're a DMD, and that's the yep. uh, degree awarded at UConn, but what's the difference? Uh, there is no real difference. I think the, the background of it was when various schools were forming some were kind of went the aspect of doctor dental surgery, um, whereas the DMD was doctor of dental medicine. Um, there's really no difference at the end of the day. It's all kind of the same thing. It just kind of varies um, depending on school to school, kind of what they're, how they were formed and why, why they chose that is kind of still, still up in the air. No one, no one really knows why some are, some are that way and others are. Why did you choose dentistry? So I definitely always knew I wanted to do something in the medical field, obviously. Um, my dad being a primary care physician, um, my sister ended up being a pharmacist. Um, my brother-in-law is a dentist who, at the time when I was going through undergrad college, um, I was kind of still in between whether or not I wanted to go down the medicine route um, and he was finishing up his dental school at that point, starting in private practice in Southington with his dad and uncle. And kind of at that point, I would, options were still open and I kind of wanted to see what was out there. And I would go to their office. I'd shadow them um, during my breaks off. And, you know, it was dentistry kind of provided a little bit of everything that I was looking for. The patient care aspect, being able to build relationships with your patients, helping people in a medical profession, as well as kind of having a hands-on approach. And especially in general dentistry, um, no two days are ever really the same. You kind of have a variety in terms of 
what you're doing throughout the day, whether it's fillings, crowns, dentures, being able to incorporate kind of surgical aspects, taking out teeth, placing implants, as well as doing root canals. So kind of that variety and um, every day not being the same was something that really, really enticed me and kind of opened up my eyes to the profession. And it's something that I, I truly love. So, Matt, you talked a lot about a lot of things that you do. Now, typically, right, when, when I was young, I mean, a dentist did fillings and extractions. That was basically it. Yep. But your training has been different because not only did you go to dental school, but then you did a residency afterward. And I know a lot of people go into a specialty after dental school. Can you talk a little bit about your advanced training and, and what that means uh, when someone is choosing a dentist? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, not to say that you can't come out of dental school and, and go right into private practice, but I mean, there's only so much you can see, especially with the way dental schools are organized, where, like I said, the first two years are kind of uh, lectures and you're gaining that kind of foundation in, in the body systems and core curriculum. And then the last two years, you're you're seeing patients. And I mean, there's only only so much you can see in in those couple couple years afterwards, especially with the way the clinics are organized. Um, you're checking in with faculty members throughout appointments. They're checking on um, different steps in the procedures and making sure everything's okay. And I mean, those appointments are long. I, when we were in at UConn, uh, one appointment was a three-hour appointment that you would block off. So. I mean, you can imagine over the course of two years, you're you're seeing a decent amount of patients, but you're not getting kind of exposure that you're going to be getting in private practice. And kind of that year extra of training kind of gets you ready for private practice. It lets you kind of see a little bit more, develop as a clinician, and um, especially where I did my residency out in California at the Long Beach VA Hospital, um, the residency I did really kind of we were the only um, residents at the clinic. There were no specialties, anything like that. So we kind of got to do everything. We were taking out teeth. We were placing implants. We were doing root canals. So it really kind of um, expanded on terms of your clinician skills and being able to, to see a lot more than you would in, in dental school and getting you ready for kind of what private practice is like. So, Matt, typically in the past, and I think to some degree, when people got implants, right, it used to be a huge procedure in the sense of uh, needing to go to an endodontist, right, to have the implant put in and then um, having to go to another specialist to have. Uh, it usually involved three different dental offices. So are you able to do everything in your office now in terms of someone who needs an implant? So do the extraction and, and the entire procedure, putting the implant in? Yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely kind of, you learn as there, there's still reasons for specialists, still reasons to send patients to oral surgeons for um, implants or periodontists for implants in terms of complicated procedures. But I mean, in kind of typical straightforward, you have plenty of bone in, in the jaw. Um, you, you have enough distance from vital structures. Um, a lot of that stuff you can keep in-house and you're able to do the extraction. You're able 
let the area heal, be able to come back in a couple months later and be able to put in the implant. And once that integrates into the bone, then you're able to restore it and actually put the tooth portion on. And that is something that kind of patients appreciate that they don't have to be running around to a couple different offices and kind of at least gives a more continuity of care and um, that aspect. So that, that is something that definitely um, patients enjoy. But like I said, there, you still kind of pick and choose. There, there's times that you refer out and there, there's times and situations where stuff can be kept in-house. Matt, let's take, I want to take a step backwards. What, how would you define adequate or appropriate dental care in terms of brushing, flossing, visiting? Uh, how do we get out in front of um, the problems that people developed uh, with uh, dental care? Yeah, uh, I mean, obviously, the, the kind of standard is obviously going in, seeing your dentist for routine care every, every six months. Um, is what we typically recommend. Um, and doing that, we're able, usually every year to year and a half, we're updating um, the x-rays that check in between your back teeth, checking for any cavities to be able to get out in front of any problems that might, might arise and become kind of bigger issues down the line. Um, but in terms of kind of home care-wise, obviously brushing at least two times a day, Sometimes even more recommended even after meals and obviously flossing at least at least once a day are kind of the standard. And um, in terms of the every six months, it kind of changes from patient to patient um, based on kind of their dental history. I mean, if patients have a history of gum disease, um, any periodontal gum treatment, um, sometimes that frequency needs to be a little bit more that we recommend having patients come in every three or four months just to stay on top of things, making sure nothing kind of progresses and advances um, in that time frame. Matt, does an electric toothbrush offer any advantage over the standard toothbrush? I mean, we see all these new electric toothbrushes and, and what's offered. Does that, does that give somebody an advantage? Is that a better way to go? Absolutely. I mean, we always recommend electric toothbrushes over manual toothbrushes. Um, patients kind of, the issue with manual toothbrushes over time is they get in the habit of kind of brushing too hard. They think they're, they're doing a great job cleaning everything. They're really scrubbing. And actually over time, um, that kind of scrubbing motion, the abrasiveness of the toothbrush and putting too much pressure actually causes gum reception. So um, the area the gums start to recede a little bit. You get more areas of the root exposed, which um, are naturally a little more sensitive, more high cavity prone. So um, especially nowadays, the newer electric toothbrushes, they all have kind of pressure sensors on them. So if you're going around brushing, putting too much pressure on your gums, the head of the toothbrush will actually slow down so that it doesn't um, cause that damage, which is beneficial kind of long-term wise, especially for patients who have had kind of that history of um, starting to have receding gums, things of that nature. Does a water pick offer any advantage? Is that a, an adequate substitute for brushing or how do, where does the water pick fit into so, all this? So we always recommend, I mean, the water pick is a good kind of add on. Um, I would say it doesn't really replace flossing because um, water pick basically 
cleans out any any debris kind of above the gums um, surface. It doesn't do an adequate job of really getting down below the gums as uh, traditional floss would. So we always recommend if patients want to use a water water pick, always say by all means um, that that's a good add-on, but it doesn't really replace kind of the traditional flossing brushing um, as, as that. Matt, from a public health standpoint, um, I mean, we were we talk about dental care in terms of actually your oral care, but in terms of your general medical care and general medical conditions, um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of good dental care? Yeah, I mean, dental care is definitely important. Um, there's a lot of crossover between general medical conditions, um, and their effect on dental care as well as dental care and their effect on the body in general. I mean, there's a strong correlation between patients who have gum disease, periodontal disease, and um, diabetes, for example. Um, patients that are diabetics um, are typically more susceptible to gum disease, periodontal disease, and kind of vice versa. Um, so being able to kind of control um, one blood sugar, things like that, reduce the risk of having gum disease long-term wise and preventing tooth loss, um, as well as um, situations like patients who are on multiple medications, um, especially nowadays, um, can have adverse effect on salivary flow, um, which reduced salivary flow can increase the susceptibility for cavities. So those patients that are on a lot of medications sometimes need to be managed properly to prevent um, that increase in, in cavities. Do you recommend that those patients, for example, a diabetic patient, see a dentist more than twice a year? Um, typically, I mean, it all is a kind of case-by-case -case, um, basis. If patients kind of when they're coming in for routine visits, we're checking their probing measurements, which measures from the, the top of their gums to where their bone level is, which is a kind of an indication on their gum health. Um, patients with any periodontal disease, those numbers increase because of the bacteria that builds up down below the gums causing bone loss. So if we're seeing a patient that might be a diabetic and they're coming in um, every six months and we're seeing a drastic change in those measurements that things are getting worse than that, in that situation, that's uh, a time where we might have to talk about getting them in more frequent or um, next step if things aren't in improving um, based on frequency, other kind of treatment modalities, potentially getting them over to a periodontist, a gum specialist to be evaluated and see if there's anything um, further that could be done to kind of prevent that progression. No, Matt, one of the problems I've always seen with uh, public health when it comes to dentistry is the difference in insurance. For example, when someone gets health insurance from their uh, employer, right, that's, that's considered, you know, part of a package. You get health insurance. If you get dental insurance, it's considered like this great benefit that's added on. And often that's reflected in people getting to the dentist, right, because um, if you don't have dental insurance, you know, you have to pay for everything. Um, is that changing? Is that going to change, you think? 
I mean, I, I definitely do do see it potentially changing. I mean, obviously, the I think the big first step is people all over the country. I mean, they, they don't have most people. There's still a big big issue in terms of medical insurance. Not everyone having access yeah. to to care in that aspect. And I think kind of until that is resolved as a first part, dentistry is always going to be kind of taken as a a backseat. So until kind of that's resolved, I think then dentistry might be able to to go the way of medicine in terms of that aspect, in terms of the access to care. Um, but I mean, I definitely do see um, changes in terms of the people that are getting dental insurance coming in more fre- more frequently and at least um, taking interest in terms of their dental dental care overall. Matt, in closing, I want to talk to you a little bit about new technologies. What can we expect, right? Because, uh, you know, we're always hearing about we don't need no more drilling, right? The dreaded drill, right? Uh, Even the sound of it, okay, causes PTSD. But, uh, you know, we hear about people saying lasers. We're seeing more advanced imaging in dental offices, right? CT scanning um, of of the mouth and jaw. Um, what can you tell us about new technologies in dentistry um, that we should be aware of? I mean, dentistry is always a evolving, evolving field in terms of technology. I mean, even over the course of the time when I started dental school, I mean, lasers weren't really a big thing, and they've really progressed over the last eight, nine years where um, they're adequate for doing fillings, um, soft tissue augmentation, as well as um, hard tissue bone augmentation as well. And um, the benefit of that is obviously the sound, reducing um, the sound of the drill, um, as well as not, not needing to get patients numb in terms, in most cases. I mean, there still is scenarios in terms of depending on how, how big the fillings are, um, how deep any cavities are that even using the laser Novocaine still might be necessary, but it does um, give a good advantage for patients who are have the fear of coming to the dentist as well as really good in terms of um, kids, pediatric patients um, being able to do fillings without having to get them numb. Um, but I mean, as well as kind of like you were saying, uh, CT scans um, in our office, we have a, a cone beam that allows us anytime we're getting ready to place implants, do a root canal, we're able to take take that scan, be able to kind of see the anatomy a little bit um, better in terms of planning for things like implants, being able to uh, determine how much bone is there, um, if there's going to be any issues with distance from kind of vital structures, nerves, things of that aspect. Um, so that is definitely a big benefit and as well as being able to kind of plan procedures, um, beforehand, um, the, the CT scans were able to kind of plan where we want to place the implants and then even send that scan and plan off to a lab and they can fabricate a guide so that things go kind of as precisely and smoothly as possible so that there's not, um, as much human error in that. Um, so that, that's a big thing. And then in terms of like our office we pretty much are almost all all digital where impressions um we take with a scanner that we send to labs to develop dentures we have our own milling unit in our office so that we can offer same day crowns so that 
patients come in, um, we'll prepare the tooth for a crown, we'll take the scan with our um, digital scanner, and then while, while they wait, it's 30, 40 minutes, and um, they leave that day with the final crown so that they don't have to worry about having a temporary crown on it, popping off, breaking, having to come back to the office. So that's something that definitely is, is in advance and something that's beneficial to the patients. Matt, if people want to reach out to you, uh, what's the best number for people to make an appointment to see you? Yep, uh, it's Southington Family Dentistry over in Plantsville, Connecticut, and the phone number is 860-628-4761. Matt, thank you very much for spending time today. And on a personal note, I want to let you know how proud we all are of your professional accomplishments. Thanks thank for coming you. on, Appreciate Matt. It. Thank you for having me on. We're going to take a short break, and then I'm going to be back to wrap this up. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Matthew Prezioso, um, for spending time with us today. If you want to reach Dr. Prezioso, the phone number is 860-628-4761. As always, I want to thank our studio producer today. Joey Burgoyne's been on the board for us. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. If you missed any part of today's program, just download the Healthy Rounds podcast. If you have any questions during the week, it's info at alessimd.com. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.